0: The following podcast contains mature language and discussions that are not suitable for younger audiences. The opinions voiced in this podcast are our own. We are not experts on the topic we present, but we have conducted our own research. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Strange and Undecided podcast. I'm your host, Jarrett. Joined by my co host, Patrick. Welcome back. Welcome back, people. All right, we've got an interesting topic today that I haven't really seen much of. So it should be very interesting. We're going to be looking at the witch trials of Canada. What do you know of witch trials? Hmm. Well, it was
1: pretty prevalent back in the old days when people didn't know about uh, probably like mental health, right? Which is kind of sad. Anytime there was just like a, an insane person back in the day, I feel like they probably just uh, shocked it up as witch.
0: Well, I guess we'll see what that leads to. What do you think? Well, I've already done the research on this topic, so I, can't, I do not have an unbiased opinion. So. All right,
1: that's, that's what I'm here for.
0: Yes. All right, so let's get started. Let's do it. When you think of witch trials, I guarantee you that the Salem witch trials will come to mind. But have you ever wondered if other countries did the same thing? In modern culture, witch hunts or witch trials would typically be believed as beginning and ending with the Salem witch trials in Massachusetts in the 1690s. However, Canada has its own dark history when it comes to witchcraft. I'm going to provide a background on the history of witch trials just for context. It'll be brief, though. Between the years 1500 and 1782, it is estimated that approximately seventy thousand Europeans were put to death from being accused of witchcraft. With one of the last known trials occurring in Switzerland. And we
1: all thought the Swiss were neutral.
0: As far as what I've seen, this happened everywhere, but the stories mostly come from North America and Europe.
1: All right, tisk tisk on the Swiss though.
0: The Hodinoshini people. Apologize if I said that wrong. The name refers to a confederation or alliance among six Native American nations who are more commonly known as the Iroquois Confederacy. These people considered witchcraft to be a serious offense. Witchcraft at the time was considered as something that endangered people in the community, so accusations of witchcraft were taken very seriously. Witchcraft went against what is known as the Great Law. The Great Law consists of three principles peace power and righteousness, and is considered both a political constitution and a basis for the Hodinoshini people. What is righteousness?
1: It seems to, uh, isn't it kind of the opposite of peace
0: and power? (laughs) So righteousness, according to the dictionary, is the quality of being morally right or justifiable. So living by a moral code, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, seems fair enough. First and foremost, the person accused of witchcraft had to be found guilty. If the person was found to be guilty, they were punished by being sentenced to death. However, if they agreed to change their ways, they could be spared. Native Americans were not the only people to believe in this. When Europeans began coming over into North America, the panic associated with witchcraft actually decreased in Europe. However, settlers from Europe were still scared with the prospect of witches being amongst them.
1: Clearly, all the... Witches in Europe went to North America.
0: Exactly. Windsor, Connecticut was the first place in the U.S. where a witchcraft trial took place where they executed somebody. A total of 46 people were accused of witchcraft between 1647 and 1697. 11 of the 46 would end up being executed. Virginia had witchcraft trials between 1626 and 1730. Fortunately, nobody was executed, though. The most notorious witch trials were the Salem Witch Trials of Massachusetts, which began in June of 1692. The community of Salem had accused a total of 150 men and women of witchcraft. Over the course of 11 months, 19 people were executed in Salem by hanging, and one man was torched to death for a grand total of 20 executions. Jesus, what was Uh,
1: going on in Salem? Like, why, why was there such an accumulation of witches in this one small town or whatever?
0: I'm not 100% sure on that. Of the 20 people killed, six of them were men. Five people would end up dying in prison before the end of the trials. Not too far north in Canada, witch hunts as destructive as Salem were happening, although you didn't learn about that in your high school history class. During the 1660s, Canada, or New France as it was called at the time, was a terrifying place to be. The settlers only consisted of 3,200 people, and the constant fear of raids from Native Americans was the norm. Epidemics spread like wildfire, and fear of calamities grew like malignant cancer. Around that time, an Ursuline nun named Marie de l'Incarnation spoke of disturbing voices she heard in the air and tales of a fiery canoe in the sky. She said that it was discovered that there are sorcerers and magicians in this country. L'Incarnation observed that these strange events began with the arrival of a ship carrying new colonists in 1660. One of the passengers on this ship was a 16-year-old girl named Barbara Halle and a man named Daniel Voyle, a Protestant-born Frenchman who had claimed to have converted to Catholicism over the voyage. During the voyage, Voyle tried to seduce Halle, but she declined.
1: Like, have sexual relations with her?
0: (laughs) Yes, he tried to wed her, basically, and tried to seduce her to be like, I'm going to be your husband. He's 16 years old? What year is this? 1660.
1: Okay, I guess if Canada didn't have laws yet, it probably could have passed.
0: And again, lifespan of people back then was much shorter, so I think it was more... 25. Yeah. You to
1: get on this marriage thing.
0: After settling in Beauport near Quebec City, Voyle found work as a miller, and Halle became a servant in a manor. Later that year, in December, strange events began happening in the manor that Hallé worked at. According to a Jesuit missionary named Paul Rajenot, the girl's home was so infested that stones were flying from all sides, thrown by invisible hands, hurting no one, though they flew through 20 people or so, with a noise and a force as great as if they had been launched by a mighty arm. Hallé then began experiencing demonic visions. Raginot stated, only the possessed girl saw the demons who appeared to her under various shapes of men, women, children, beasts, and hellish specters, and at last spoke through her mouth, without seemingly using the possessed girl's voice. The general consensus was that the manor was haunted. However, Hallet was moved to another place, but this wasn't the fix. François de Laval, the bishop of New France, became aware of the situation and ordered an exorcism to be performed, but to no avail. Laval even came in person to try exercising the woman himself and yet again had the same outcome. Halle was finally moved to the colony's hospital called Le Hotel Dieu de Québec. It was run by a convent, and within the convent was Catherine de Saint-Augustin, considered to be the holiest woman in New France. Mother Catherine would use her experience to help Halle. Mother Catherine said she had been, quote, obsessed with the devil, end quote, since the 1650s. Obsession in this case is different from possession, where the demon tormented her, but she still had full control of herself. So it's more so like the demon was obsessed with her, but didn't possess her. According to Rajenot, various figures either to fool her, either to scare her, sometimes they would shake her bed during the night, other times they would act on her tongue or other parts of her body to keep her from praying aloud, confessing, receiving communion, take holy water, or make the sign of the cross. Mother Catherine, in her attempt to help Helé, provoked the girl's evil spirits. Ragineau stated, Those unhappy demons, unable to intimidate her with all their threats, tried to surprise Mother Catherine by changing themselves into angels of light in order to delude her. While this was happening, a different investigation was taking place. The authorities of the colony in which Halle originally resided came to the consensus that Halle's demons were brought about from someone on the ship she had traveled from France on, Mr. Daniel Vuille, the man she rejected.
1: I knew it. She was suspicious from the beginning.
0: <laughs> exactly. Trying to seduce 16-year-old girls. Not a good look. Halle claimed that a vision of Daniel appeared to her and the colony authorities took that as proof enough though she was the only one who could see him. Daniel was subsequently arrested. According to Marie de l'Incarnacion, the man was a wizard. Having to deal with the embarrassment of rejection from Halle, Daniel sought revenge and wanted to, as Marie described, achieve his ends through the ruses of his diabolical art. The bishop that had attempted the exorcism and failed Bishop Laval was also on the same ship as Halle and Daniel, and was the one responsible for converting him to Catholicism. However, once Daniel made the trip into Canada, it was discovered that he did not convert. To the Catholic Church, he was what is called a relapse, which is an offense so severe that it is punishable by death. Daniel was also selling alcohol to the local First Nations people, which made it easier for the colony authorities to point fingers at him. This was a newer law of sorts, strongly promoted by Bishop Laval, which condemned those who trafficked alcohol to these people at the time. The odds were not looking good for Daniel. He was a relapse, trafficked alcohol, and was a witch.
1: What is a relapse in terms of an uh, athletic thing?
0: They had extremely strict um, religious beliefs at the time. And a relapse is somebody who would convert from whatever faith they were before. So in this case, he was Protestant. And he converted to Catholicism, but then went back to Protestant. So he almost like relapsed back into his old religion so that was punishable by death apparently on october 7th 1661 in quebec city daniel Ville was executed however the true reason for his sentencing is lost to time as there are no documents of the trial strangely enough the punishment at the time for witchcraft in new france was to be banished from the colony not be sentenced to death there's been great speculation by many different historians as to the true reason that he was shot and killed Some say his relapse was his demise, as his final resting place is unknown and he wasn't buried in the Catholic cemetery. Others say it was because of his alcohol trafficking. What's more shocking, though, is even after his death, Halle was still experiencing the exact same demonic infestation. In 1662, Mother Catherine would finally find the solution to helping Halle by sewing her into a bag. What the fuck does that even mean? Apparently, this would help prevent demonic attacks of the youth. Even though this doesn't make any sense, this was combined with the intervention involving the spirit of Jesuit martyr, Jean de Brebeuf, healed Halle, and she fully recovered.
1: If it works, it works.
0: No questions asked in this case. She went on to lead a perfectly normal life and got married in 1670 to Jean Carrier. She passed away at the ripe age of 52 in 1696. She lived a full life. A full life indeed. As mentioned earlier, stories of bewitched flying canoes on fire were folklore in New France. The legend came about from a combination of a First Nation legend about a flying canoe and tales from New France about a hunter condemned to be chased through the night skies for eternity because he was hunting on Sunday during high mass. French-Canadian traders, or couriers de bois, and voyagers adapted and changed the legend for their own needs. An example of this adaptation is well known in La Chasse Galerie, written by Honoré Beaugrand in 1892. This story starts with a group of woodcutters who end up making a deal with the devil to get them home quickly to their loved ones on New Year's Eve. However, they weren't allowed to speak, mention God's name, or even touch a church steeple. Otherwise, the devil would possess their souls. They agreed to the deal and were gifted a flying canoe. The woodcutters made it home and were able to attend a party and dance the night away. When they left to go back to work the next morning, the navigator of the canoe, too drunk to be in control, narrowly missed hitting the church steeple. The rest of the woodcutters, afraid their soul would be possessed, tied up the drunk navigator. All the while, nobody was driving the canoe and it crashed into a pine tree and everybody was knocked out. Fortunately, nobody was hurt and they all eventually awoke in their own beds. This spectacular tale lives on in the form of a beer label for a strong, dark beer from Quebec called Modite, or Damned, which launched in 1992. The brewery that made this beer wanted to convey the idea that drinking this beer was like making a deal with the devil, as it was the first strong beer to be sold in Quebec at the time, which was only 8%.
1: Modite. Long story short, I would drink it.
0: Moving to modern times, I found an interesting fact. In Canada, pretending to practice witchcraft was illegal until 2018 under section 365 of the Criminal Code of Canada. This section read, pretending to practice witchcraft, etc. 365, everyone who fraudulently, A, pretends to exercise or use any kind of witchcraft, sorcery, enchantment, or conjuration. B. Undertakes for a consideration to tell fortunes, or C. Pretends from his skill in or knowledge of an occult or crafty science to discover where or in what manner anything that is supposed to have been stolen or lost may be found is guilty of an offense punishable on summary conviction. What is important to note here is that the word pretend is crucial. The Criminal Code of Canada fails to mention the literal practice of witchcraft itself. The law was put into place in 1892 and was modified from a previous law, the 1735 British Statute, which prosecuted people who made false claims of witchcraft. Prior to the 18th century, witches were viewed as a real threat to humanity. The 1735 Statute attempted to clear up the issue by stating that witchcraft was inherently fraudulent. The main idea was to limit witchcraft fraud, but an upside to this was that it could be used to prosecute vulnerable or marginalized women. This was the case for a woman in Huron County here in Canada, and it was considered the weirdest case that has come before the Ontario courts in many years. Maggie Pollock was an Irish girl born in Huron County on May 11, 1879. She worked as a housekeeper on her brother's farm in a town called Blythe. Maggie said that she was possessed with a peculiar occult gift that she used to help people find lost or stolen items. Maggie knew she had a gift from a young age, and it only grew from there. By the time she was 16, she was able to see and hear things that others couldn't. One story she had was of a time she visited a friend in Boston. She realized her friend's house was one that she had already seen before, and the elderly woman who used to live in it. Other visions that Maggie had would be that of two strange machines. She thought one to be a chariot of angels, but noticed that the machine had wheels on the bottom. What was more shocking was that this vehicle landed beside her and normal people disembarked from it. The other machine she saw when she was out driving was what she described as a train that ran without a track. Many years later, Maggie would realize that she saw a modern version of a plane and car, but she saw them before they were invented. So the chariot of angels with the wheels on the bottom was the plane and the train running on a track was a modern car. Maggie claimed that her abilities and visions were God-given gifts and were natural and not driven by the occult or witchcraft. Maggie wanted to share these visions when they came to her. She promised to help her neighbors when they came to her, but never guaranteed results. Eventually, this became trouble to some people in the community. On June 30th, 1919, Maggie was taken to the Huron County Jail from being accused of telling fortunes. This is where Section 365 of the Criminal Code of Canada comes in. A farmer named John Leinhart from Godrich had given Maggie 50 cents for a seance. He wanted to find out who stole his oats and grains from him. Apparently, Maggie was able to see the horse that the thief rode on. Judge Henry Dixon in the court determined that she, quote, did unlawfully pretend from her skill and knowledge in an occult and crafty science to discover when and in what manner certain goods and chattels to wit, certain grains and oats, supposed to have been stolen from one John Leinhardt. end quote. What was interesting, though, was that it was never revealed to the court whether or not John got back his stolen items. At the time, newspapers were actually becoming aware of the situation. They published stuff. So this is a clipping from the Wingham Advance in 1920 titled 20th Century Witchcraft. The Huron County Witchcraft case is rather a ludicrous instance of the oppressive use of authority through its victim, Miss Maggie Pollock, who lives amid the rich countryside of the Huron tract, may be pardoned if she does not see the joke. It is pretty late in the day for the Attorney General's Department to be pursuing old women who think themselves witches and are so regarded by their neighbors. There is no charge that Miss Pollock flies around on broomsticks or exerts malicious animal magnetism to the discomfort of her neighbors. Neither does she possess a black cat endowed with the power of speech and reason and capable of acting as a medium of communication with the underworld. On October 13, 1920, Maggie's case was appealed and Judge Dixon's conviction was upheld. From the Clinton News Record, the judge admonished her that the practice must cease and has bound her over in bonds of $200 from herself and from her brother to refrain from pretensions of occult power and from practicing the occult science. The court would allow Maggie to give her opinion of the stolen items in question, but not claim she had any special gifts or abilities. That's fair. Many members of the community actually supported Maggie during her conviction and appeal. A neighbor of Maggie's testified to help prove Maggie's gift. She explained that Maggie had successfully helped to find her lost diamond ring. Maggie said she was able to do this by talking to the neighbor's deceased mother. The mother told her that the ring had been thrown out with a dust pile. Maggie explained that the neighbor would have to wait until the snow melted in order to find the ring. The neighbor and her husband tried melting the snow, but to no avail and were told to be patient. Sure enough, a few weeks later, when the snow thawed, there was the ring. Hey! Another article from the Wingham Advance, titled, Seeress of Blythe, not so certain. Miss Maggie Pollock, the Seeress of Blythe, whose uncanny power of solving mysteries by delving into the occult has earned her a province-wide reputation, is not so sure she would like to tackle the baffling problems of the Perry and Rumbold killings. It is said that persons extremely interested in the matter appealed to the provincial police at Toronto to seek the aid of the Cirrus. The police have been told of her supernatural powers. They have been told that residents of Huron County go to her with their troubles and their secrets and that she has a strange power of finding lost cattle and jewels, of seeing into the future, and of unearthing the hidden past. It is said in Blythe, that there are no secrets closed to Maggie Pollock. Miss Pollock said that she might consent to work on the two cases if she were approached. It is a long time since I have had a case like the Perry slaying, she said. What she thought, the seeress refused to say, nor would she give any guarantee that I could solve the mystery if called upon. I never know what I can do. The work is independent of myself and I simply follow it. I can't direct at all, the seeress explained. Based on the public fascination with the occult and witchcraft, it is no surprise that Maggie's case spread like wildfire in 1920. Mixed emotions arose, as some thought it was shocking that an older woman in Huron County was performing miracles, while others were shocked that someone was accused of something as archaic as witchcraft. The Toronto Daily Star stated, There is a fairly widespread belief in the occult. It is growing. Why not cope with this sort of thing more intelligently than by merely putting the ban of the law upon it? The same article suggested that Maggie be subjected to a public testing of her abilities to prove once and for all if she was telling the truth or if she was just a fraud. The public showing would be harmless as she would simply do what she had allegedly been doing this whole time helping people find lost items. However, this never ended up taking place.
1: Oh, I would have liked to
0: see that. I was kind of hoping. That, that would have happened and just.
1: Big happy ending. Yeah. She's a hero.
0: Despite the skepticism, Maggie had many people who believed in her. She received letters and visitors from people as far away as Florida, Texas, Missouri, Nebraska, California, and Vancouver. The police even asked her to see if she could help locate the missing bodies of drowned victims a number of times, as I mentioned in the article before. The Seaforth News reported that a constable all the way from London, High Constable A.J. Wharton, met with Maggie to get her insight on the escape of two murderers from London jail in 1927. Are we talk about our London or London, England, London? London, England. Ah, oh, it's never our London. At the age of 70, Maggie Pollock passed away. The Seaforth News made a statement. She was an honor in her own country because her neighbors have always had the utmost faith in her and can relate scores of interesting stories. She was fondly remembered as a well-known and highly respected resident of Morris Township. Despite the verdict of the witchcraft case, Maggie was able to help people in the ways she had always wanted. And whether you believe in her abilities or think it's a clever trick, we know this. Maggie Pollock was a magical woman, one way or another. Serious.
1: What do you think of the tale of Maggie Pollock? believe in her abilities?
0: I mean if she actually helped people find lost things I feel like if she did it consistently over and over and over again it's really hard to refute the fact that she had some ability. Yeah maybe she's
1: like just way ahead of her time like maybe in the future we're all gonna be able to find our lost items with mysterious psychic abilities who knows.
0: Or I could counter with this. What if she was the one who stole everybody's shit? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's
1: a good twist.
0: Yeah. And she was just playing them because there are a number of Canadian cases where people have actually been charged with false witchcraft before 2018, like giving false readings, saying that your cancer has gone away or if you pay me this much money, your cancer will go away and people have sadly enough believed them. But there's different cases like that, which I am 100% for prosecution because they are just taking advantage of these vulnerable people and stealing money from them. True. They are taking
1: advantage for sure. But what if, uh, on the other hand, they are giving people a sliver of hope and maybe it is helping them a little bit. Like a doctor, for example, they're going to give you the honest truth. They're not really going to sugarcoat anything, right? Maybe sometimes doctors aren't even right. They'll give you like a, a, a bad prognosis and you believe it and then you turn into what you believe. Like if you don't have cancer and you're told you have cancer, maybe you will actually manifest a disease that you never had before. I really hope mind. that's
0: not the case. That would be awful. I feel like people who are like worry warts would just get instant cancer. Like people who are scared like hypochondriacs. Like wouldn't everybody just be sick because they think they have some form of disease? Yeah. I mean it kind of it's kind of true
1: though. Like uh look at all the worried, anxious, not happy people, you know, in your life. They probably get more sick more often than the happy go lucky people you know in your life. You know what I'm saying?
0: I agree. And I think that also leads into the fact that your wellness is definitely related to your attitude and mindset. I feel like people who have like a strong will to live, not everybody, obviously, but a good majority of people who have a strong will to live and a reason to live will live. Whereas people who are just kind of like, I don't care anymore, they end up just drifting off and passing away.
1: Oh, for sure. something's going to take you out eventually. But the people with the stronger will, with the positive outlook, they have got to live longer than the people looking on the doom and gloom side of things.
0: In more recent history, during 1944 in British Columbia, a boy was hunted by his community following the death of his own brother as he was accused of witchcraft. He was interrogated and tortured by people in his community as well as his own family members.
1: They were accusing him of witchcraft in 1944?
0: Yep, not that long ago. He only survived because he escaped into the woods. The account itself comes from a man called John Honigman, who is an American anthropologist who interviewed the boy who escaped. He stated, They got the whole crowd looking for me, but they never found me, he said, describing breathless moments of searchers coming within breathing distance of his hiding place. John was an academic that was traveling along the Alaska Highway and documented his travels. The wartime construction of the Alaska Highway was disruptive to otherwise isolated First Nation people living in the area. As a result, John was exposed to their culture and was able to document their way of life before it was washed away due to cultural upheaval. In the process, he found a very dark and unspeakable secret. He started hearing tales of people being accused of witchcraft and people being tied up and left for dead due to accusations. What was more shocking was that, quote, generally some child or youth of either sex was fixed upon as the guilty party. End quote. When a member of the community died suddenly, for some reason a child was the culprit in their eyes. This was consistent with the Salem witch trials, he wrote. This was consistent with the Salem witch trials. He wrote about how an adult would escape the charge of bewitchment and blame it on a child. He continued From there, the witch could admit guilt and face the likely prospect of execution, or they could maintain their innocence, prompting days of torture until they confessed. The commonest means of torture seems to have been tying up the suspected individual, sometimes hanging him up by the heels and starving him. The RCMP had been informed of the 1920s of the Casca witch killings, but either did not believe the accusations or simply didn't care because they were First Nations people. Finally, in 1924, a three-member RCMP expedition was dispatched to investigate, led by veteran Mountie Theodore Sandys Wunsch. What a name. They set out from Vancouver and traveled to Alaska, finally reaching what is now called Lower Post. The trip was no easy feat. Eventually, the Mounties were able to find somebody who had information, and they were led to the site of the execution where they found the remains of a boy tied to a tree named Atoll. Five people in the village were charged with murder, including the chief and his wife. The trial was held in Prince Rupert, And the Crown would claim that, quote, The maiming of human beings, including children, has been commonly practiced amongst the Indians in the northern portion of this province. At the time, First Nations people were brazenly considered savages. Newspapers across Canada and the United States featured the murder and titled it, quote, Indians still under spell of witches, end quote. The treatment and views of First Nations people were abysmal. However, from what we know now in Kaska tradition, they never executed witches, nor did they have anything like that in the surrounding communities. They did, however, believe in black magic and sorcery, and this was feared. Punishment, though, was not usually death. During the mid-19th century, fur traders, missionaries, and the 1898 Klondike Gold Rush began arriving, and with them, a wave of diseases swept across the lands and into the Kaska communities. John was told by elders, hundreds of First Nations people had died as a result and it wiped out families and communities all over. When asked about witchcraft, they were not eager to discuss that subject. John wrote, they rather consistently maintained that it was white people who constantly spoke of witches and not them. Damn white people. But that's the thing is these people weren't, they had no idea what these diseases were. So they thought it was this black magic and sorcery that was just killing people off that the white man brought. They didn't realize that it was just disease.
1: Yeah. Imagine all the stuff that we have now, that uh, in the future, it'll be the equivalent of witchcraft just because we don't know what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. Right?
0: From legends of enchanted flying canoes to visions of lost items, there is no denying that Canada had its fair share of witchcraft trials and tribulations. While it's not as widely known as the sensationalized Salem witch trials, the belief was the same that witchcraft is to be feared
1: Candace got a dark history doesn't it
0: it really does we just don't ever talk about it nah because we're too nice eh alright so that's the end of our story today if you are interested in sending us any ideas or stories please email us at strangeandundecided@gmail.com. at gmail.com and if you'd like to keep up to date with our podcast please follow us on the typical podcasting platforms and check us out on Podbean as we use this platform to distribute to all other ones All right, that's it for the show tonight. Thank you. And good night.